Welcome to the Magic and Alchemy podcast, where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore, and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals, and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers, including myself, Kristen Lizenby, and my co-host, Kate Ballou. Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm Kristen Lizenby. Kate, it's winter somehow, and I feel like the last time we spoke, it was harvest season, and now here we are, one week away from the winter solstice, Yule, the shortest day of the year. So how are you? It's funny how that always seems to happen, doesn't it? Just Mm -hmm. another quick turn of the wheel. Now it is December. Um, The cold months, the short days, the glittery nights. I both love and dread this time, which always just feels very fitting, you know? Yeah. Lots of cozy nights by the fire in Mm -hmm. your future and mine. Yeah. And I know that you and I often get asked about creativity and how to keep our creative fires burning during these dark, cold months. And this is something you and I talk about constantly, you know, how to stay inspired. So do you have any thoughts to share for those listeners um, wondering the same thing? Yeah, I love this listener question and I love how it just changes and evolves yet also just stays the same over the years Mm -hmm. like it's kind of special um but it's funny too that we bring this up because this morning I was looking at the new seasonal workbook for Tamed Wild and it was written by Shelby Bundy but it is a 12-week workbook called Conversations with the Universe and it's just full of creative prompts and rituals and quotes and explorations for the winter season. Um, I was like, Shelby, this is so timely and perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of the winter seasonal box, which I just wanted to like do a little plug for because it's available now through February and um, it'll begin shipping Friday the 15th. But you can get this workbook separately for, for our word witches. And I think that you know, dedicated spaces and practices and guides like this can be just so, so helpful. Um, and I just love, I love thinking of winter as a creative cocoon and a time for hermiting and the dark moon and the crone and word witchery. And Kristen, you and I, we host the winter crossroads during Mm -hmm. the winter season for this reason. Um, you know, a practice for myself that I'm really working on for anybody who wants to join in with me uh, this winter is just really working on my commitment to my writing practice, my creative practice. And I'm kind of approaching it in this really methodical way right now, like really clearly setting intentions, really clearly carving out time for that space. Um, and so I'm going to, I will continue this practice into the winter. Um, so if anyone 
anyone else wants to do two pages a day with me, a committed journaling practice, like reaching out to the witch wide web for this. But I'm just really seeking respite and haven from New York City cold in my in my creative work and just trying to bring like a sweetness and a romance mm-hmm. to this space, which I think is something that ritual um, is really beautiful for, you know, working with herbs or candles or or just speaking very sweetly about the practice. Um, but what's going on for you? Like, what are your favorite winter rituals for creativity? Do you have any intentions for the season ahead? Yeah, well, first off, I'm definitely going to join you with the two pages a day because I love that. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think reading will always be my favorite ritual for creativity. Um, a very passive ritual, of course, fitting for winter, um, but a ritual nonetheless. And I don't know who it was that said this. These are not my words, but I once heard a writer say that you can't write a lot unless you read a lot. And that's always stuck with me. And for as long as I can remember, my biggest creative practice uh, has been writing. And so now whenever I'm feeling blocked or uninspired or just, you know, I desire a creative boost, I will read more. And, you know, depending on what I'm reading, this can be very restful and centering. And I do think there is a type of magic and creativity that follows a period of rest or even boredom sometimes. (laughs) So, yeah, listeners, let's read more. Um, And not the thing that you feel like you, quote, should be reading because you're trying to teach yourself something Mm -hmm. or be actively learning you know, read the fiction book that you bought forever ago, but have been putting off for more serious books. Read a young adult novel because it sounds cute. Read for fun. Read for curiosity. Mm. Um, yeah, and maybe do some bibliomancy too. Another favorite of ours. Mm-hmm. I love that. The reminder I needed to hear, you know, the cute mm-hmm. book, the fun book, yes. the curious <laughs> book. Yes, for all of that. So mote it be. Absolutely. Or something better. Yes. And today is our last episode before Yule, the winter solstice, midwinter. And listeners, while we won't be talking about too many of the traditional things linked to this time of year, that's only because we've already done that. Long-time listeners are likely well aware, but new friends and witches, Kate and I have an earlier episode dedicated to the winter solstice where we talked about the weavers of destiny and folklore and myth. And Kate, you dug into your Slavic roots and talked about Marzana and some interesting winter traditions. We also have a Yule-centric episode where we talk about Gryla, the Yule Lads, Bera, the shadow side of the season, Yule Logs, the Wild Hunt, and Glitter Magic. So if any of that stuff interests you listeners, be sure to check out episodes seven and eight from season one. Mm-hmm. And then in season two, we spoke about the solstice's relationship to um, not just the crone, but all three faces of the goddess, including maiden and mother. We talked about winter witches, Robin Hood, and magical animals, including deer and reindeer. 
And that is episode 46. And, you know, we'll be sure to link all of these conversations in our show notes for anyone who wants to listen. Thanks for those reminders, Kristen. Like I have forgotten that we've mm-hmm. talked about some of those Long things. Long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a nice like little surprise again. Yeah. Um, revisiting. But it is midwinter again, listeners and friends and witches of the witch wide web. So today, Kristen and I thought that we could take a little trip together. Um, one to the place of symbolic winter, the underworld. So I'll be speaking about myths of the river Styx, the heroes and goddesses who have traveled there, the ferryman Charon, Styx herself, and the goddess Psyche. And in this underworld exploration, I'm dancing with the bees, some seasonal thoughts for my current reads, and the concept of wintering throughout the year. The belly of winter is ancient, and inevitably, we're back in the thick of it. In my mind, the belly of winter is hungry and cavernous, marked by twisted roads and steep footpaths. There are impossible-to-cross rivers, icy waterfalls, and fairy ponds cloaked in stillness and solitude. In the belly of winter, the weather is unpredictable and storms are frequent. But so are the surprises, flurries of knowing that remind us we are on an earthly, ancestral quest. And while the belly of winter churns, it's our dreams, the strange ones, the memorable ones, that will satisfy the seasonal craving. And the stories. The belly of winter yearns for stories. When used as a verb, wintering can be something we experience not just during the dark months, but throughout the year. From the book Paganism, an introduction to earth-centered religions by River and Joyce Higginbottom, they write, The arrival of winter is not only about winter, but those times in our lives when we are stripped bare and proceed in faith through darkness. It's about the hard times. The times we endure the loss of loved ones, illness, injury, a lost job, a period of depression. It's about watching our parents' age and friends' age. It's about our own aging and death. Winter is also about quiet, rest, recovery, simplicity, and openness to change. We can say, then, that faith, loss, change, and rest are some of the spiritual lessons of winter. End quote. Winter is a season, but wintering is a practice. Historically, the days surrounding midwinter were when people focused on inner work. Activities like reading, studying, journaling, divination, or meditative crafts like needlework or kitchen witchery took center stage. Unlike the summer months when the energy is extroverted and busy, winter was slow and an introvert's dream. Sleeping more was encouraged because if you slept in later than usual, you saved on firewood to heat the house. And if you went to bed early, say, as soon as the sun set and it got dark, then you saved on fuel for your oil lamps. Mm. I have a blog with five ideas for deepening your magical practice during the winter months on the Tamed Wild blog from last year. If anyone is interested in those threads for time of study or inner work, I love that, Kristen. 
Thank you. In Catherine May's book, Wintering, which feels like sitting down with a cup of tea with an old friend, she writes, Plants and animals don't fight the winter. They don't pretend it's not happening and attempt to carry on living the same lives they lived in the summer. They prepare. They adapt. They perform extraordinary acts of metamorphosis to get them through. Wintering is a time of withdrawing from the world, maximizing scant resources, carrying out acts of brutal efficiency and vanishing from sight. But that's where the transformation occurs. Winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. End quote. That's so beautiful. It is. And You know, a crucible can be considered a trial or challenge, but a crucible is also a container where metals and sometimes other elements are broken down, hopefully creating something new. In this way, wintering is a form of alchemy, or at the very least, its vessel. In her poem, Wintering, Sylvia Plath says that winter is for the spinning women in a time of hanging on for the bees. In this poem, while sitting in a dark cellar, Plath talks about the jars of honey she stored away and the commercial sugar she'll feed the bees until the flowers return in spring. She talks about how a hive survival sometimes requires sacrifice because... Unlike the animals that hibernate or go semi-dormant during winter to preserve energy, bees actually become more active. They use their buzzing to create a bee-powered furnace that heats the hive. But that alone doesn't ensure their survival for if the bees' honey supply runs low, their food source, female workers will evict the male drones from the hive. And as I was reading about this practice and Plath's poem, I couldn't help but think of Dionysus, who is often compared to the pagan dying god and his relationship to the bees. Dionysus is, of course, the horned Greek god of the wild and wine, and some tales paint Dionysus as a beekeeper, a maker of honey wine or ritual nectar. He is said to have been raised by a nymph in a sacred cave who kept him alive by feeding him honey. Later in life, Dionysus roamed with his band of wild women, known as Maenads, who I know we've spoken about before. And because of the Maenads' intoxicated, frenzied dance, their association with Dionysus, and because they were often depicted with wings, the Maenads became linked with bees. And so in that way, offending the Maenads was often an offense to the bees. Dionysus is an underworld guide, for he visits frequently and is good friends with the queen, Persephone. Bees carry a similar psychopomp energy to that of Dionysus, and when you consider that bees often make their homes within caves and cliffsides and tree hollows, places that mythology and story suggest could be portals, it's not hard to see why bees are so often linked to the underworld, especially at winter. It's so interesting, and I I feel like we've read about them being related to the oracles at Delphi and also as priestesses to Artemis or even older iterations of the goddess. Right, Kristen? 
so magical. Absolutely. Yeah, the Melissa, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, they showed up quite a bit um, in my research. And in David Abrams' book, The Spell of the Sensuous Perception and Language in a More Than Human World, Abram talks about the importance of welcoming this season um, and wintering creatures with grace. He says, It is not only when speaking of other animals that one must be mindful, but also when alluding to the forest trees, to the rivers, even to the winds and the weather. He speaks of a Koyukon elder's advice, quote, accept the weather as it comes and avoid remarks that might offend it. This is especially true of cold, which has great power and is easily provoked to numbing fits of temper, end quote. Both winter, the season, and wintering, the practice, can be initiatory periods. So the concept of choosing our words and actions wisely during this time feels potent. Symbolically, wintering means descending into the underworld, but what that looks like to each of us will vary. In her book, May suggests that in winter's depths, we are all wolfish. In the wolf, we are offered a mirror of ourselves as we might be without the comforts and constraints of society. We want, in the archaic sense of the word, as if we are lacking something and need to absorb it to be whole again. End quote. When considering the underworld, Barbara Walker reminds us that this place doesn't have to look like the Christian hell, and in fact the ancients didn't view the underworld as a place of eternal punishment. Walker says, quote, It was dark, mysterious, and awesome, but not the torture chamber Christians made of it. She says, Shades of the dead dwelling in Tartarus, aka the underworld, endured no torment other than the general cheerlessness of being dead, lacking blood, shadows, voices, and vital energy, they waited yearningly for rebirth. Beyond the Christian and Greek interpretations of the underworld, uh, the place where fairies preside, fairyland or the other world, um, these places have also been compared with the land of the dead. Um, except for for the most part, fairyland is described as a place of sensual delight and pleasure and play, although it does elicit a trickster energy as well, especially in its relationship to time, which seems to pass more quickly than when in our reality. And the Fairy Queens by Sarita Deasti and David Rankine, they talk about the relationship between Persephone and the Fairy Queens for this reason. So this good. This is such a good book. Yeah, listeners, this is a great book to add um, to your reading list if you love fairies. Maybe a future Fairy Queen episode? Oh, absolutely. Taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> And if we want, we can also view the underworld as the unconscious realm of self. Um, and if we do that, then we might also understand our wintertime dreams and dreamland in general as another type of underworld, one that we visit every night, but definitely for longer as the nighttime hours outweigh the day right now. 
may suggest an interesting story about our society's relationship to sleep over the years, which feels relevant come winter uh, as we're spending more time in bed. She writes that according to the historian A. Roger Eckert in his book At Day's Close, Night and Times Past, that before the Industrial Revolution, so say late 1700s, mid 1800s, it was normal to divide the night into two periods of sleep. The first sleep or dead sleep lasted from the evening until the early morning hours. And then the second was known as the second sleep or morning sleep, which lasted until the sun came up and you rose for the day. But there was a waking period between these two sleep periods known as the watch, where people woke up to use the restroom, to smoke, uh, visit with family members, friends, and even their neighbors. Roger says that many people use the watch to make love and pray and reflect on their dreams, which they treated as a significant source of solace and self-awareness. In wintering, May concludes that in these intimate, dark, quiet moments, people could hold insightful, rich, philosophical, wandering conversations that had no place in the busy daytime. And so, listeners, as we continue our wintering quests this month and beyond, I invite you to join me in seeking out more wandering conversations and questions, the ones best held in the dark or in the dreamy moments preceding a new year when the earth sleeps and our imaginations stir when the bee furnace hums and the wolfish reflections return to our mirrors, when we journey to and from the underworld together in the belly of winter. Friends, witches, when was the last time you received some magic in the mail? Whether you're in the mood for tea, tarot, witchy books, or enchanting ritual tools to help you cast your next spell, the new Tamed Wild Quarterly Box seems to know exactly what we need. This seasonal delivery of magic and earth medicine is hand-selected by the Tamed Wild Coven, and because words are indeed spells, my favorite part of this offering is that it includes a beautiful workbook with astrological updates, intention-setting guidance, and three rituals to inspire the magic maker within. To learn more and sign up for the Tamed Wild box, visit tamedwild.com and click on subscriptions. When I think of the darkest days in the Northern Hemisphere, I can't help but think about the underworld, a time linked with Persephone's descent, bringing about the seasons. Winter is often symbolized as a moment of initiation, a time of retreat, and as a moment for internal reflection. To me, this is the time of the shadows, the dark myths, ancient ones, feral stories, as life and death draw closely together, and we must huddle around the mythic hearth and fire, sharing stories to get us through the dark night. Today, listeners, I'd like you to travel with me to talk tales of the underworld, exploring one of those impossible-to-cross rivers, as Kristen mentioned, that is impossible to cross unless you know the way, or have your toll ready to pay the ferryman. 
I'm talking about the underworld river, the river Styx. The name Styx loosely translates to shuddering, hate, abhorrence, holding back. In some myths and legends, the very water of it is considered poisonous, called Stygian, meaning to carry a deep foreboding presence or gloominess. This river is also known by the name of the River of Hades and was one of the five rivers in the underworld. And Styx's main function is to separate the land of the living from that of the dead. Madeline Miller wrote that an oath by the river Styx would hold even Zeus himself. And by the river, the gods would make their most solemn promises. In both the Iliad and the Odyssey, Homer mentions this calling Styx the dread river of oath. This was because in the war against the Titans, the goddess Styx herself sided with Zeus. And because of this, Zeus decreed that the oaths of the gods must be sworn by her. Styx was born to the Titans Oceanus and Tethys, making her the oldest of the Oceanids. She was the wife of Titan Pallas and mother of Zealous, personification of glory, Nike, personification of victory, Kratos, personification of strength, and Bia, personification of force. In some tales, she was the mother of the monster Echidna, who Kristen and I spoke about in episode 104, The Mothers of Monsters and Magic. In some tales, Styx is a companion to Persephone, lounging in the field before her first encounter with her future partner, the god of the underworld, Hades. The waters, like many underworld myths, strike both fear into the heart but also bring blessings. As legend has it, Thetis took Achilles to these sacred waters after it was predicted that Achilles the infant would face an early death. She dipped him into the river Styx to provide him with the powers of invulnerability. However, she held him by the ankle, which would give him his famous Achilles heel. Charon is considered the ferryman of these vast and treacherous waters. He was born to the primordial dark goddess Nyx, the goddess of night, and Erebus, the god of darkness. In some depictions, he is an ugly, bearded man wearing a hat and a tunic, standing in a skiff with a pole. And in other depictions, he is considered a demon with a skin a blue-gray color, tusks and serpents draped over his arms. His mission and purpose was to ferry the dead across the river, bringing them to whatever afterlife awaited them. For the mortal world, to ensure that Charon would deliver their dead, people were often buried with Charon's obol, a coin buried to be paid to the ferryman of Styx. For the ancient Greeks, the obol was often placed under the tongue or over the eyes, and for those that didn't or couldn't pay the fee, well, they were destined to roam the earth for eternity as specters and as ghosts. In some stories, the psychopomp Hermes assists Charon with his duties, and there are many tales of this figure as he interacts with the heroes from Greek mythology, including Odysseus, Hercules, and Orpheus, as they make their pilgrimages to the underworld to complete their famous quests. But, heroes aside, I am most interested in the women who make the trip to these sacred waters. 
I think of the tale of Psyche, the Greek goddess of the soul, wife of Eros, the Greek goddess of love, often depicted as a woman with butterfly wings. Originally, Psyche was a princess who attracted the venom and jealousy of the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite forced Eros to condemn Psyche to fall in love with one of the most unattractive of all men, but instead, the god fell in love with the princess, carrying her away to be together. In a twist of heartbreak, Psyche's jealous sisters tricked her into betraying her love, causing Eros to forsake her. Searching the world for her beloved, Psyche falls into service of Aphrodite, who gives her a series of impossible tasks. Her third task brought her to these very waters, to gather the river sticks in a crystal cup given to her by the goddess. Zeus takes pity on Psyche and sends an eagle to retrieve the water for her, saving her life from a treacherous cliff. After the completion of the tasks, she is reunited with Eros and has a wedding ceremony attended by all of the gods. The asteroid Psyche, her namesake, is linked to the tale of this goddess and teaches a lesson of the underworld in our own birth chart. Demetra George, who we love on this podcast, Kristen, thank you for mm-hmm. introducing me to her work, but she's such a wonderful educator about the asteroids and their meanings in astrology, and she says that, quote, before the use of asteroids, the only sign Significators of the feminine and traditional chart interpretation were the moon and Venus. On Llewellyn's journal, in an article titled, What Does Psyche Mean in Your Astrological Chart?, Isabel Ghana writes, quote, Psyche is one of the most important asteroids in your chart. Psyche's asteroid number is 16, and she was discovered on March 17, 1852, when the sun was in Pisces. Pisces is the sign of unconscious thoughts and dreams and is ruled by Neptune, the planet of illusion, mist, and vapor. Pisces and Neptune can give us creativity and artistic ability, but also incline us to want to escape from reality into a pleasant dream world where nothing is real unless we want it to be. Side note, I just think it's so interesting just bringing in themes of the river Styx with Pisces mm-hmm. and Neptune, especially related to Oceanus and being an Oceanid. I just, yeah, I don't know. Feels so, fitting. Yes. <laughs> Continuing on in the article, Psyche is the Greek word for soul. And Psyche is the place in your chart that can detail for you where you can find your entrance into yourself. Psyche also represents psychology and is involved with the discipline of the study of the mind. Psyche encompasses the soul, the mind, and the self. Psyche's story is filled with archetypes, as we are all mythological tales. Fathers who are cruel or neglectful or overindulgent, foolish, and devoted. Jealous women, as in mothers, stepmothers, or sisters, and of course, the lover. The lover may be disguised, so the fair maiden cannot see his face or guess his identity. He can be cruel or he can be kind. He can be a demon or a god. His being and persona changes in each story and in each version of the story. The end of the tale is always the same, since the ultimate end of the heroine's story is her final understanding of herself. It is the final acceptance of her totality of being, which includes her mind, body, and spirit. Psyche's story involves the ultimate acknowledgement that the soul can be granted immortality through its ability to love. End quote. 
Psyche travels to the waters of Styx and finds herself and seeks love. Persephone traverses these waters, bringing about the season and initiation into her own power. The personification of the river Styx is the very foundation for a true oath in this world of myth, building a world, a deep connection with death. The goddess Hecate keeps keys to the underworld. She aids the mourning mother Demeter in her search for her daughter through this landscape. The primordial goddess Nyx, the beginning of all creation in partnership with darkness, gives birth to the divine ferryman, protector of these waters. So this winter, I invite you to travel your own underworld river, complete a quest, turn inward, put your ear to the churning and shuddering tides, and hear the secrets of initiation for yourself. so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at tamedwild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Join us back here in two weeks for a conversation about nostalgia magic of the season. And just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it. So mote it be or something better. Until next time.